Hello and welcome to Patris. This is Meg. This is Lane. And today we're reviewing When You Wish Upon a Duke by Sherith Michaels. This was published in 2021 and is the second book in the Awakened by a Kiss series. And full disclosure, we did receive a complimentary advanced review copy from NetGalley. So this is the second book in the series, and we did review the first. Um, if you'll recall, the first one was a Snow White and the Seven Dwarves retelling. Mm-hmm. And this one is also a fairy tale retelling. It is. Let's see if you can figure out which one it is by, by the jacket. All it takes. After a childhood spent cavorting around Europe with a dangerous crowd, Miss Isabel Tinker has parlayed her experience and language skills into a safe, reliable life. Working as a clerk in Mayfair's Everland Travel Shop, she dreams of someday owning her own travel agency and has vowed never to leave the familiar shores of England ever again. When a handsome duke arrives at her doorstep, she realizes her state existence is about to take flight is faith and hope. Jason North Beckett, the Duke of Northumberland, desperately needs a travel guide. He's inherited a dukedom, but has a final mission for the foreign office, rescuing his wayward cousin from Nordic pirates. Isabel Tinker is the ideal translator, discreet and unknown, but she's also uncooperative, stubborn, and disarmingly beautiful. And a little bit of trust. In exchange for her help, North promises Miss Tinker her own travel agency upon return and strict professionalism at sea. Isabel cautiously agrees, but soon realizes strict and professional are not how she would describe her feelings for the irresistible Duke. As their adventure sweeps them to the shores of Iceland and beyond, can temptation and growing trust give way to the magic of wild, passionate love? The answer is yes, it can. <laughs> but also, okay. <laughs> Actually, this, you know, this, this is not a bad jacket. I, I think this comes back to the same thing we said about the first book in the series. The jacket lacks the whimsy of the books. It lacks the whimsy of the books. And it's, I mean, if you, if you didn't know this was a fairy tale retelling, you wouldn't know from the book jacket. I think it's a less obvious and less tongue in cheek fairy tale retelling than the first book though. Yeah. Oh yeah. I, I, okay. I'm just going to come out and say it guys. I, did not figure out which fairy tale this was a riff on for a long time. <laughs> I only picked up on it early because her boss's name is Hook. Well, her boss's name is Hook. Her assistant's name is Smee. She wears green all the time. She has a, a blonde bun on her head. I did not figure it out, Lane, until she said she, she told her story about Peter. And I was like, oh... It took me that long. Yeah, and if, okay, just to, like, beat the nail over with a hammer again and again, this is basically a story of Tinkerbell falling in love with the North Star? I guess. But Peter's girl isn't Wendy in this book. It's someone named Anna Clara. Mm -hmm. And Wendy is Tinkerbell's half-sister. It's, it's... It, 
It is not a one-to-one retelling. It's, it's well, but the first one yeah. wasn't either. But the first one, Snow White was a character. The Huntsman was a character. They're finding the Seven Dwarves. Like there was, it wasn't like a retelling, but there was consistency in terms of like things you recognized. Yeah, from the fairy tale, where I feel like uh, I put this later in my notes, but I'll just do it now. The fact that Peter Pan never actually shows up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're. I would say this is more of an in, inspired by the imagery and the story than Unless, anything. Like, like what we jokingly said, like the first one could have been fan fiction. Right. Like of, Snow, of the huntsmen, like going back and having a normal life. And yeah, the dwarves weren't Snow White's groupies. They were a group of women brought together at the party where Snow White showed up. But there was still some like homage to it. This is much more like loosely inspired. Yeah, yeah. But also, once I, fi- okay, once I figured it out, I was like, oh, this is so much fun. <laughs> it did take me a while. Yeah, I just, as somebody who loves fairy tales maybe more than they should, for the record, not Disney fairy tales, um, this one was a little less fairy tale whimsical than the first one. But, I mean, that's the question, too. Is this, would you consider this a fairy tale? No, and I would consider the first one. Right, but I mean, would you consider Peter Pan a fairy tale? Yes. Oh, okay. I would not, personally. Okay. So, for um, me, it's not, a, it's not a fairy story. It's, you know, it's a, you know, 20th century, late 19th century play. I get that it's not a Brothers Grimm tale. Yeah, 1904. Right. Okay, so I was correct, 20th century. But... Um, so, as usual, Megan and I generated a random number between 1 and 50 and have written our own summaries using that number of words. And today, the random number is 45. I'll go first because Meg's summary is better. Oh. Isabel strikes a bargain to return to the site of her life's great tragedy in exchange for financial and social independence. The guy offering it is a super sexy. She won't be a mistress, and he doesn't want her to be, but she doesn't trust men. I mean, all true. Yeah. All right, here's mine. Ducal Spy recruits Lady Travel Agent as consultant for his last unofficial mission for the crown. She might have been able to keep from falling for him if he'd been able to keep from falling at her feet in Icelandic hot springs under the Aurora Borealis. In fairness... Um, no one should have to resist anyone hot in those circumstances. Never. I mean, who to also to be fair, she puts herself in those circumstances precisely to get what she got. Right. <laughs> so um it's fair. He also, um, Gentleman Jackson's get fit workout screen game for the um North Star Made Manifest. <laughs> be a spy. Be a spy. Be a soldier, third son of a Duke soldier who Fell into spying. Be hot. Um, so number one trip here is definitely fairy tale retelling. Yes, that's that's the biggest one. Even though it did take me a while to figure it out. Um, number two main trope is he's a spy. Yep, he's a spy. What other tropes do we have going on? Well, she's really small because she's Tinkerbell, so she's <laughs> she's like what five foot. Yeah. Small. She's not that small. She's five foot two. It's a very normal height. 
do we know anyone who's that height like? I will just state for the record that isn't the average height of an American woman like five three, five four. Five five. No way. I only know this because I am five five and it's like the average height. <laughs> okay. I'm just saying I feel like for a woman to be like remarkably short, she needs to be under five foot tall. Uh, I mean, I would say five feet or under would be remarkably short, yes. Okay. So I'm just saying, if you're going to make someone Tinkerbell, I feel like they should be 4'11". I mean, that's fair. But he, so she's small, and he's also, like, giant. I get it. There's literally a phrase in the book where she was like, one of the best things about him being big was that she had to climb him. Yes. I was like, I mean, yes. I'm I'm here for this. Uh, one of my friends and I randomly had this really lengthy conversation last night about acceptable height differences. Uh huh. And we were both below average height. Mm-hmm. And we were saying that comparatively, we feel like a foot's height difference is like the maximum. Okay. Because beyond that, even if you're in gigantic heels, either he's got to pick you up or he has to become a deformed punchback. To get to your mouth. Yeah. And we were like, it's it's so silly, but the number one imagery is like, at the altar on your wedding day, would you have to do something weird for your mouth to touch? Well, they managed think- to avoid that issue. I'm just saying, I don't think he was too tall. The, like, you know, we never get, we, we know that he's big. But we don't know how big. Specifics. But for the record, I was not picturing like six, seven. No. Because that's too big a height disparity for anything normal to happen. No. I mean, I was just imagining because he's, I mean, he's described as being just like big, tall, but also like built. Yeah. I was picturing like six, one and buff. Yeah. But I'm just like, he wasn't like a giant. No, he wasn't a giant, but like she's little, he's big, you know. I think, look, I'm a short girl who likes tall dudes. There is such a thing as too tall. You can't okay. reach their mouths. All right. Um, he is both an unexpected heir and a reluctant heir. Yeah. So he had a string. His father died, and his two other oldest brothers died. So he never expected to get the dukedom, but he has it. And he has lived his life as a spy for the foreign office, and he's real pissed. He has to give up spying to be the Duke. Or does he? But yeah, he's, he's basically spent the past 18 months trying not to have to be the Duke. So, it's tough. Okay, so there is a very specific kissing trope that happens in this book, and it's the Someone's coming. Kiss me since we can't hide. And like, kiss me in a way that is usually what happens in this situation is the woman's identity is a secret. Correct. Because the guy can break around and it's not a big deal. I mean, or it's neither their identities is a secret, but the reason that they're there is a secret. So it could be that they're spying, but the reason that they're in the office. So I'm thinking of um, Hello Stranger. Right. The reason they were in the office and he was picking a lot or cracking a safe and someone came in and they were making out. Right. Right. So they weren't hiding their identities, but they were hiding the reason they were there. But they still didn't want her to be recognized because a woman in a 
secret location for a rendezvous, even if it was just a sexual one, obviously stands to be ruined. Yeah, but... A guy with a woman in that situation doesn't. Yeah, but in, like, modern movies, in a modern spy movie, it doesn't matter. So I'm just saying this is a trope that spans across genres. Oh, a hundred percent. But in romance novels, I often feel like it's coupled with because the woman can't be found alone with a man. Very often, To yeah. be compromised. So do the compromising thing that hides her face. Mm-hmm. It's great. It's perfect. So in this one... She's a bastard child of a nobleman, mm-hmm. which I feel like we see a lot, right? People on the fringes of the aristocracy with aristocrats. And specifically when it's a woman who is illegitimate or whose mother was illegitimate or whose father threw her and her mother over for his mistress, you end up with the woman who is insistent that she will never be a mistress because she will never subject herself or her future children to the same shame of being not illegitimate. Yeah, I mean, it's a trope, but it's it, it's a trope that makes a lot of sense. We'll never I, have an issue with it. Well, and even you see it sometimes gender-swapped with mm-hmm. guys, usually who are legitimate heirs, whose father had mistresses and illegitimate offspring, and they've become close to those siblings or witnessed their father's neglect, and they won't be their father. Right, or even Richard Sinster, you know, he was the <laughs> illegitimate child, and he's like, like, I will, we have to get married because I'm not going to have a bastard kid out here, you know? Yep. So there is a scene where she wears pants and he's like, wow, this outfit is amazing. Um, my favorite part is he's like, yes, this outfit is amazing, but not because of the, oh my God, pants. The outfit is amazing for like so many reasons. But when he sees her getting naked later, he specifically describes her removing her breeches as the most erotic thing he's ever seen. Mm-hmm. It's true. And it's just funny because especially I don't feel very elegant when I'm taking pants off. Especially like you feel like she's wearing skinny jeans, you know? Like (laughs) skinny ones and you like have to get them over your foot. (laughs) Right. Like I'll unzip a skirt and because it's no longer clinging to my waist, it puddles at the floor. Whereas like getting pants off is sort of like I need a crowbar and like some leverage. It doesn't feel hot. I mean, I guess if you've never seen it before, it's really sexy. I will tell myself that the next time my pants are sort of stuck and I have to, like, shimmy real hard. Yeah, just t- just tell yourself that next time. Just be like, just imagine that I'm Isabel Tinker. Yep. And then, I mean, she's a lady traveler. Which we've seen a lot. And it's often, like, daughters raised like men. In the yeah. sense of, like, their father gave them a male education or daughters raised unconventionally. I mean, to a degree, Amelia Peabody fits this trope, right? That's true. Mm-hmm. Like, I think the daughters, usually who are the sole inheritors or the best inheritor or the slightly neglected, end up with a quote-unquote man's education. Yeah, well, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then they end up traveling. Yeah. Although Isabel does not, that's not the reason she ends up traveling. And I, I mean, I was... I thought it was great, actually, the reason that she does. I was so interested. Me too, but Lady Traveler is a trope. She's a pretty unique take on it. Yeah. She's also a polyglot, which I feel like Lady Travelers often end up being. Always, always. Either they travel because they want to put the languages they've learned into use, a la Amelia Peabody, Mm -hmm. or 
yeah, they, they just happen to be really good at it and they just pick it up on their travels. Yep. Cause that's how learning languages work. Definitely. I haven't spent 15 years being mediocre at the one I tried to pick up. Mm -hmm. So did you like this book? I really did. I absolutely love this book. Um, I think I liked it better than the first in some ways. Me too. Um, and I don't know how much of it was actually being a better book versus how much of it was like understanding what to expect. Yeah. Because I feel like the first really set up, like, okay, this is not going to be super explicitly sexy. This is not going to be a one-to-one fairy tale retelling. Like, I think this benefited from the expectation setting of the first. And so knowing what I was getting going into it, I adored it. Absolutely. I love, I just loved this book. I really, I thought it was so much fun. So whimsical. So, like we said about this, the first one, just really ridiculous. I don't know. I love how there are these fantastical, ridiculous, whimsical situations, but the characters she created felt like real people who reacted to those ridiculous situations. Yes. So uh, that's, I think, what I like the most. It's also a spy book, so automatic bonus points. Um So I would say probably about half of this book takes place in Iceland. And I loved it. I thought it was so interesting. It was so great. I thought it was fun. And this is where we say, like, the fairy tale retelling is a little bit not one-to-one. Mm-hmm. But, like, Iceland is sort of Neverland. Sort of, yeah. But Captain Hook and Smee aren't Neverland. They're back in England. But there are sort pirates, of like- though, in Neverland and Iceland. Right. But they're not led by Captain Hook. Mm-hmm. But I just, I loved the idea of this, like, real place as mystical. Yes. Like, the Aurora Borealis and the, like, actual hot springs, geological hot springs, and, like, taking these very real phenomena and making them magic. Yeah. I thought it was so much fun. Yeah, it was so much fun. I, is this the first like straight historical romance you've read in in Iceland? Yes. Yeah, same for me. I So I have read, so Peg McMaster does have a paranormal romance, shifter romance that is set in uh, historical Iceland. Mm -hmm. But that's the only other series I've I've read, um, romance series that's set in Iceland. I went to Iceland like three years ago. And before I went, I was like, I'm going to read books set in Iceland. So I, I now read like, Icelandic noir so I've read a ton of current mysteries set in Iceland but they are you know contemporary Mm -hmm. but yeah it was really unique and really fun I thought I enjoyed it big time Mm -hmm. I also liked so this could have been a road trip romance except instead of road trip sea trip uh huh but she is so profoundly seasick. Yes. And I actually kind of liked that homage to, like, the way people experience things differently and sort yeah. of de-sexying it. Well, I, what I liked about it, look, would I have loved Road Trip Romance but on a boat? Yes. Yeah. You know, forced proximity, they're in the cabin, they're on the deck, all that stuff. Like, I would have loved it. 
Did I like the reversal of expectations? Yes, I did. Well, I also want, in the way that a sci-fi, like, people often have trouble in time warps or whirlpools or operating in Harry Potter or, like, I kind of liked the, like, in the emphasis on, on this as an incredible other. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like the fact that Passage was not an easy snap. Yeah. In a way, like, drew attention to just how far Iceland was. Absolutely, yeah. It, it really was a different place. It, it lent itself to the, the Neverland or the place out of time trope. Exactly. And that's one of the things that Isabel is, I think, legitimately worried about. You know, she's worried because they developed their relationship mostly in Iceland, this, like, magical, mystical world. And right. she's like, well, when we get back to the real world, are you going to feel the same way, you know? Mm-hmm. And right. anyway, I, I liked it. I really liked, I liked the voyage. I liked the whole everything that happened in Iceland. I liked everything. Yes. These two, similar to the first book, like, are immediately in lust. Oh, immediately. It's great. Not a complaint. No. Not a complaint at all. One of the things I loved was how, for Isabel, she was like, this man embodies my weaknesses, basically. Like, I am, I am trash. She's basically like, I'm trash for the confident, funny, nice, big guy, basically. You know, the big guy who doesn't use physical force to get what he wants. Yep. And I don't know if I'm into that myself, but I appreciated that Isabel was. Yes. And I think I'm okay. Weird thing. I just noted because it happened in the first book and then it happened again in this book and sexiness might be the right place for this, but I'm thinking of it now in both this book and the previous book, the guy's erection is mentioned often in very clinical terms, Uh but then like the guy's, pleasure isn't at all incorporated except in like the one sex scene that's penetrative yep and I just think it's a really weird combo yeah I don't hate it at all but usually I feel like if a guy's penis is being talked about a lot it's in the context of because he is going to be pleasured nope and this book just wants you to know he has an erection and then do nothing about it that's that's basically it And uh, uh, look, there is not, this book is not explicitly sexy. Right. But you feel how much the characters want each other. Like every time you're in either of their perspectives. So basically the entire book, you know that they want the other one. Well, and to the point that spoiler alert, they end up together. He's basically like, no, I would like the wedding day to be as soon as possible because I have been in agony physically for months. Mm-hmm. And she's like, well, we can wait. And he's like, I will wait for you if that's really what you want to do. But I'd rather not. I want to be clear about my physical state at all times. And then she's like, I mean, me too. So let's do this. Yeah. Great. Okay, 
so like I just said, Jason is this guy. He's this big, strong soldier, but he doesn't use physical force to get what he wants. He doesn't seem to use much like slyness or like lying or being like super slick either. He's just one of those guys who's like very candid. And yeah, very nice, very affable, very, you know, just a nice, I know this sounds stupid, but just a nice guy, you know, and you can tell that he's nice and you're like, okay, like there's a scene where they capture a pirate and he's interrogating the pirate. And Isabel's like, oh, my God, have you been, like, beating him up? And Jason's like, look, it's been very uncomfortable. I don't want you to know what I've been doing. And it turns out that basically he was just like, I will pay you to tell me all the secrets. He hasn't been beating him up at all. (laughs) And I just loved it. And she's like, wait, you're paying for the information? And he's like, what did you think I am? Like, (laughs) a torturer? (laughs) One of the things I love the most about this book, and I'm trying to say this as spoiler-free as possible, mm-hmm. for all that he's the spy and presented as very capable, a lot of the physical confrontation is actually handled by her. Uh-huh. And even though there is occasional mention of, like, the worst thing they can do to you isn't just beat you up and starve you for weeks... She's not never textually defending herself from sexual advances. Never. Like her badassery and her like I'm whipping out my physical skills on the page are always like the the thing you expect the action hero to get. Uh-huh. I loved it so much. I yes, I agree. I was I just feel like one of the things this book does at every single turn was a reversal of expectations. Like everything. Yes. I expected her to need to be rescued. Nope. I expected at the ball, so they go to a ball, I expected the ball to need this, like, really dramatic confrontation. Nope. Yep. It just, I, I really liked it. I really liked it a lot. And there are a lot of things about, like, the social structure of Regency England that if this were a traditional romance novel, I might quibble over historical accuracy. Not in terms of, like, clothes or word choice or anything, like, historical in that sense, but in terms of the way characters interact with each other and progressive social views and, like, acceptance. Mm -hmm. But this is a fucking fairy tale. I don't want realistic. I don't want normalized. I don't want to quibble over the fact that his family is super chill with whatever. Yeah. Like, this was fun as all get out, and I loved it. Yeah. I was thinking of you, actually, when we were – when I was reading – because there are parts where he, so he's really into Isabel, not just because she's like really, you know, beautiful and he's attracted to her. He's also attracted to her because she's very smart. Mm-hmm. And he can tell that they would work really well together as spies. And I thought of you, Lane, because I know that there are part, there are books that you dislike because the author will tell us that they're really witty and really fun, but you don't see it on the page. But I felt that, I thought that it was really well done here. Oh, I love the repartee. Mm-hmm. This question. I, like, I felt like I was shown and not told. Right? And so later when he's like, wow, we would really work well together, you're like, yeah, you would, because we, we just saw it. You just did yep. work well together. Yeah. Anyway, I thought that was great. Me too. 
And um, and then, so I guess continuing with the theme of reversal of expectations, I, I actually really liked at the end, too. I don't know if this is getting into spoiler territory, so you can, you may want to skip ahead 30 seconds, a minute. But um, at the end, she wants to keep their betrothal a secret, and she wants him to come for her. And he doesn't. He he wants her to come for him. And I just really liked it. I really liked it a lot, Lane. And their conversation was so good because they were both, she was like, I was really hurt that you didn't come and get me. And he was like, well, I was hurt that you didn't come to get me either. And I thought their conversation was so great. I just loved it. Again, that sort of lack of communication generating conflict, if taken seriously, might have frustrated me. But in this context, it really worked. Well, and the fact that they had a conversation about it made it work more for me, too. Well, and the fact that that four weeks of separation wasn't, like, outlined in several chapters of grief and pining. It was an aside mentioned for about six pages before they were in touch with each other again. Mm-hmm. Um, the only thing I was kind of disappointed in in this text from a plot perspective is I do really wish Peter had shown up. And, like, gotten punched in the face or... Or even just, like, the way Snow White showed up in the first one. Yeah. Like, the way that she was simultaneously not as bad and worse than the Huntsman remembered. (laughs) Yes. Well, what could have been cool would be that somehow they... Even if he didn't show up on the page, but if they found out that, like, Peter went back to Iceland and got captured by the pirates or something, you know... Yeah, I, I just wanted him to, like, I get why he couldn't, because at this point, six years have passed since even she was a part of the quote-unquote Lost Boys, and obviously the character of Peter Boyd is not permanently childlike. So like, seeing an adult man still in that state would just be pathetic. Like, there's no way for him to be charming in the way Snow White was still charming. Yeah. Yeah. But I do kind of feel like I liked that the titular fairy tale character showed up in the first one in a way I didn't expect. Yeah. And it would have been really fun if that had been the through line in the series. Yeah. Rather than what is clearly going to be the through line of this weird trader shop. Yeah. Yes. Which, I, which I, I don't dislike. I I will say I read it and I was like, hmm, I wonder how that necklace is going to play up in the next book. Same. Totally. Right. Anything else before we dive into content slash trigger warnings? I, I don't have anything else. I liked it. Moving on. Loved it. Yeah. So content warnings. Um, she did suffer a miscarriage and she's still recovering from it, basically. That's the thing I I could have handled with being slightly different. I mean, I think regular listeners will know kids and romance novels, not my favorite. Pregnancy drama and romance novels, not my favorite. And I did think it was like a weird, serious, grown-up issue, especially to put in the book about the Lost Boys. Yeah, I... Why? I... Like, that's the one piece of grief that I don't really, you got to make it about kids and fertility and that part of femininity. Like, can it just be a different issue? 
Yeah, I mean, I I get it though. You know, if you're gonna put in a conflict or you're that has to do with growing up, you know, that's a big one. Yeah. You know, parenting stuff like that, and I will say in her case, so she it's been a long time since she suffered this miscarriage. And at first you're like, okay, aren't you kind of over it? Wouldn't you think you would maybe be over it by now? Like it's what, six or seven years later, right? And at the same time, I was like, she's only told like two people ever. Yeah. So I get it. I don't know. It was, I didn't, I, listeners, I did not cry. So I don't know if that tells you how hard it was, but I did appreciate, I, I did not have the same issue Lane did with it. I thought it was very, I thought it was well handled. Yeah. The Um, miscarriage is, is conveyed in the same speech where she's talking about why she and Peter broke up mm -hmm. for lack of a better word. And I feel like the breakup in and of itself would have been enough of an impetus for what happened subsequently. Right. And so I just didn't quite understand what the miscarriage was adding to the story. I know what you're saying, though. It's a commentary on growing up, and I think that makes sense. I guess I just didn't need that additional detail for it to be a commentary on growing up. Sure. And then there is there is another part that I, I will say I did not cry, again, but was very affecting Mm -hmm. and it's it has to do with how she grew up so her father she was the illegitimate child um of an earl uh, and her mother's an actress and the way her father treated her was very difficult to read yes not abusive not any violence against children, to be clear. Not even any, like, verbal abuse against a child. It just has to do with the way he treated her in public and the way she came to understand what being illegitimate meant. Right. So, like, the spoiler-free version, you don't have to worry about that you're, like, going to read about a kid getting beaten by a parent. That is not no. what happens here at all. No, not at all. And uh, I, I didn't... I didn't have any issues with it um, at all. Again, I thought it was very affecting. And I, what I really liked about the sequence was how it showed her mother in, in a complex light. Yes. Um, so her relationship with her mother is very, I wouldn't say it's like super delved into, but I, I really liked it. She has a very complex relationship with her mother, which I think most of us do, right? Yeah. Um, and then I think the only other thing I'd add to this list is she, at the beginning of the book, works for Hook. Yeah. And he makes regular advances on her that she is adept at sidestepping. Yeah. And I know this really resonated with me. I certainly wouldn't call it, like, a content warning or, like, offensive. But I felt her exhaustion. I know that exhaustion. I know that feeling of humoring unwanted attention because it's easier because it maintains the status quo. 
rather than confront the way in which the behavior fringes on inappropriate or definitively becomes inappropriate or threatening. Yeah. And I just feel like most women are going to commiserate with that feeling of like, oh God, girl, we've been there. Yep. Absolutely. So sexiness. It's so funny. Like exactly the same as the first book. Yep. <laughs> it's, it is. It really is exactly the same. It definitely could have been sexier. So the sex scenes themselves are not super explicit. Like Lane says, she wants to know where people's hands are. You're not really sure where their hands are. Yep. But there is so much sexual tension. Cut with a knife. Like you, again, every time these characters are together, you know they want each other. And you you feel it. You feel it yourself. You're like, yeah, come on. You know, so when they finally get to kiss, you're like, yes. Yeah, and that's the same thing I said about the first book, except in this book, I was prepared for it. Yeah. <laughs> for all the build-up, the final payoff is super fluffy. Is You're right. It's very fluffy. I think that's the perfect word for it. Like for all the really, like, erotically charged build-up, the one payoff sequence ends up being, like, sugar plums. <laughs> Yeah. Like, I want to know where hands and tongues are at that, like, at everything you've built up. Yep. Uh, look, I'm not going to lie. I wouldn't have minded a little more. Same, but I can't say I was disappointed it wasn't there because I didn't expect it to be there. Exactly. What's going to blow my mind is if in one of the subsequent books, suddenly midway through the book, there's like a really explicit sex scene. I'm going to be like, am I, did I skip ahead? Like, what in the world happened here? You're like, what is this book that I'm reading? I'm not holding that one. No. Am I going to expect it? No. Would I, would I be disappointed? Absolutely not. But at this point, would I be confused? <laughs> Maybe. In a good way. <laughs> in a good way. Yeah. But I would be confused it's true I also like I really appreciated with this book especially as compared to the first in terms of the sex scene just how much it leaned into the magic of the moment yeah and like Meg said that like it, some of it is very legitimate and it like parallel to real life experiences of like oh god is this a honeymoon phase because of these exceptional circumstances that are absolutely not real life but some of it's just also really fun and very tale like she paints watercolors, and I felt like I easily, like, could envision the watercolor of the two of them in this hot spring waterfall thing. Oh, I mean, yeah, so could I. <laughs> that hot, like, the, the, it was a fantasy. It, it was, I would say, so like a lot of times they're, like, sexual fantasies, right? So I mean, like, yeah, there was a sexual aspect to this fantasy, but more than that, it was just, like, a fantasy. Like, what is going on? This is amazing. Yes. Like, the fact that they were clinging to each other for dear life and turned on as hell was, like, a piece of the painting. Right, right. But then there's also the Aurora Borealis and the steam rising from the water. And her, like, unbound hair enveloping them and his huge body holding on. Like, yeah. Yeah. It just worked. Totally. Totally, it totally worked. I agree. So, thank you guys so much for listening. We would love it if you would rate, review, subscribe. We're Plot Trists on Instagram and Goodreads, so check us out.